We'd now like to introduce um, Gordon Betjeman and our first uh, panel. Uh, Gordon is um, currently a professor at the School of International Development and Global Studies at the University of Ottawa. Um, and as you'll read from his bio, he has a, a wealth of experience related to uh, the World Bank, labor issues, um, social protection issues. And uh, we're delighted to have him chair this next session. Thank you. OK, thank you, Fraser. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, this is a panel that has done quite a bit of, gone through quite a bit of restructuring itself in the last couple of days for reasons that Fraser has mentioned. Um, I want to start by, first of all, just uh, briefly introducing the speakers and explaining how we're going to organize the panel. And then I want to spend a couple of minutes just phrasing the, uh, framing the issues um, to set the stage for our first speaker, uh, John Sinclair. Let me just make two or three remarks just to try to set the stage for John. Um, the topic of this panel is on governance. And in fact, this is a discussion that we got into last night, for those of you who joined uh, with us last night. Um, and it's clear that the financial crisis, which became a global economic crisis, has fueled the debate on what the global financial and economic architecture should look like. Um, the thinking here, of course, is that global economic integration has raced ahead of global political institutions to manage that integration. And for people concerned about reforms in the global economic and financial architecture, those concerns were exacerbated by the fact that the crisis spread from the U.S. globally because, uh, according to this view, um, there were not institutions to manage the spread of that crisis more effectively. And second of all, in managing the response to the crisis, the spotlight has shone on what the global institutions are to uh, guide coordination and concerted international activity. Now, the kinds of issues that we're going to talk about today on governance of the global economy are not new issues. They were already very much on the agenda and have been for a number of years, largely because of the shift in global economic power. And um, there's no way you can look at the structure and locus of global economic activity now compared to 30 years ago and conclude that there's no need for institutional reform. So for example, for myself coming from the World Bank, at the Bretton Woods institutions over the past number of years, of course, there have been ongoing debates about how the heads of the bank and the IMF should be chosen, what the voting structure should be on the boards of the bank and the IMF, and the regional development banks as well. So these kinds of debates have been going on for quite a while. But the crisis has really turned up the heat on the necessity of moving ahead with global economic and financial reform. And that largely has been, I think, for two reasons. One, questions of legitimacy, legitimacy of the G7, G8, legitimacy of the current structure of the Bretton Woods institutions. These have been brought to the forefront. But also on a more pragmatic level, it was simply apparent that the response to the global financial crisis could not be effective if only G7 members were at the table. And the most obvious case here is the incredibly key role China was going to have to play in terms of 
restoring some kind of global financial balance with their enormous reserves. So there are both political legitimacy, but also very pragmatic and real economic motivations for rethinking the architecture for global governance. Um, there's a whole bunch of questions that we could talk about today, and I hope we're going to get to as many of these as possible. And again, a number of them were raised last night. But I want to just end my introductory remarks by highlighting what I see as two tensions that are at the core of the discussion on reforming the global architecture. And one is the balance between global and national institutions. Um, in a lot of the discussion about the reform of the global governance framework, I think it's forgotten that, and Professor Ocampo put it very nicely last night, that at the end of the day, it's national governments who have the accountability to the people on this planet, and at the end of the day, they're the ones who are going to have to deliver the goods. So we can't forget that we still live in a world where national sovereignty is extremely important. And the second tension I wanted to talk about again was raised last night, and this is what the principles should be to guide whatever reforms of the global governance architecture are to be put in place. And the tension here, I think, is the obvious importance of inclusiveness. And again, Dr. Ocampo made an interesting point last night that he doesn't care if it's G8, G20, whatever, if his country is not in it, that club of countries is going to have limited legitimacy. So there's a question of inclusiveness, but then there is the very real and pragmatic question, and um, Chuck Friedman, I think, put this on the table last night, of efficiency of responses, the what are the limits in terms of the number of countries that can really be engaged in the decisions that are going to guide international architecture. So there is this tension going on. Um, at the one end, we have um, a very strong argument for a G192, but at the other end of the argument, it's very difficult to see how that would work. So this is a tension that is going to guide both the reform of the existing institutions, like the Bretton Woods institutions, and also the G8, G20 group that I know John's going to talk about, but also the prospects for a new institution, such as the global coordinating committee that the Stateless Commission recommended. So there's no um, uh, shortage of questions for this discussion. The fact that we got to it last night, I think, highlights how important this is in the overall discussion about the financial crisis in the aftermath. And with that, I'll leave it to you, John.